last name in the podcast game. Ken and Mila are the unacceptable podcast. Mike, check. Ha! Ha! Hey, guys. Um, what's up? We are, this is, a, we're, we've returned to podcasting in person. Uh, which is much more preferable, and uh, we got to check the mics, so that's what uh, that's what you're hearing right now. I'm gonna let you in on a little hot goss. I basically had a panic attack last episode and just like left because I'm babysitting my parents' dog, and uh, he's been barking for like 14 hours. Like no matter what I do, he's like either eating something that will kill him or barking. And I had I was so for UBI and so like personally exhausted I had nothing to say so I just I just left but I hope it was a good episode sorry Mila we we've had a conference about it yeah yeah so our guest is gonna join us in a few minutes so and we thought you know why cut the banter short uh, for nothing let the rivers flow let the rivers flow like and a thousand to the sea. Uh, thousand jugs of wine <laughs> says uh what's that poet's name <laughs> jugs guy jabron <laughs> jabron yes he's not also gonna he's not gonna to his friends say jugs the old jugs jabron big jugs was he gay no oh my god I'm if my grandparents are listening to this please don't not, get mad at me not. this is a cool <laughs> Strictly millennial podcast yeah, for all the hip cats. That's true. That's true. We uh, we we're not in that business. So Kent, yeah, sorry. So yesterday I interviewed Leah Gazan. Uh, it was fun. Um, some standard basic income stuff. I had li- you were like any question, Kent. I had literally not a single thing to say. I thought you were gonna ask about inflation. We kind of I fe- didn't we not cover that. Yeah, I guess because she was saying, like, okay, it's going to be um, extended to, like, or it's going to be different every region. I didn't like that either. So I didn't want to nitpick her, but I wanted to. Uh, yeah, I like it. I feel like yeah. as a Vancouverite, I deserve more money. Yeah. No offense to you. Uh, I don't know. Where is the cheap place? You Hicks. You Albertans. <laughs> <laughs> no, Montreal. Like, if you're living in Montreal, you don't need as much money as I need to rent out a place in Van. Just saying. But that that's the Check whole valuable thing about basic income is that it's, like, not, it's not a point of trig. It's just, like, here, need a helping hand. Yeah, I know. But, like, I think, you know, there's a point. Yeah, I like, I would want one anyway, just... What, a point of trig? No, I just mean, like, I think Carl was correct, and he was like, why UBI? Because you want it. And oh, yeah, like, exactly. I was like, you know what? Yeah, like, even if I have, like, theoretical quips, I'm always just like, mm-hmm. you know, better than, than nothing. It so. has to be equal to the corporate bailouts last year, at least. Yeah, I know. Holy shit. The, the crazy thing was she was saying, like, we spent a ton of money on getting f- fridges for Loblaws. <laughs> Oh, it so like just unreal. Um, so yeah, we have a pretty like fucked up country. So before we started recording, Ken and I were talking about Bin Laden's daughter, um, because she's actually kind of hot. <laughs> uh, so like I don't know if 
like how to feel Imagine about if that. she had an OnlyFans. <laughs> that would be oh quite man. the OnlyFans. You fans. could make like meme memetic references to like I don't know that much about Osama bin Laden. Yeah. Did you know that he so he would like he said that in Islam uh, masturbation is forbidden except for in extreme <laughs> circumstances. <laughs> extreme build up. <laughs> Uh, like I want, like I wonder what that would be. It's like when you're when you're running some sort of terrorist campaign, <laughs> and it's like fire away. <laughs> <laughs> there was some Onion article about like some uh, leaders watching Mia Khalifa. Oh God! And, like studying and and how their tears filled many uh, uh, tissues. <laughs> Oh God! Shout out to Mia Khalifa. We could get her on the pod. She's like a uh, a sports personality now. Yeah, dude. Yeah, some yeah. porn stars got so fucked by like being before OnlyFans. Yeah. Because they made like no money, and now OnlyFans people post like feet pics and make like thirty thousand dollars a month. I know. I feel like the like there's critiques of OnlyFans to be made. I as wish well. I had a, like a lucrative OnlyFans actually. <laughs> Why don't you start one? What what? Cause like, what what should I do though? There's like honestly, there's a demand for literally everything, you know. <laughs> like, <laughs> like if there's yeah. people out there, like oh there's man. gonna be a demand for it. Robert Baratheon <laughs> cosplay. <laughs> <laughs> like I I don't know. I just I'm sure there's some crazy shit. On Asthma it. arguments with Cersei. Oh my god. You fucking bitch. You fucking fucker. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's 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 a bit sad. I feel sad about the OnlyFans thing. Robert Baratheon roleplay. He can't <laughs> get erect in like a brothel. <laughs> <laughs> it it's fine. It's fine. He's he's like apologizing. We have a guest, but he has to deal with his kids. Plain, I said I love you too. You said everything is different now. Everything has changed. Always on a plane, always something new. Who's that? You said nothing's changed, nothing's been, I just need you. This is 100 Gex. Oh, right. I, I'm t- I still don't feel the hype. Yeah, it's 100 Gex. I don't hate them. Just discriminating against them. <laughs> <laughs> I just don't get it. Like it's just I love it. It's like subversion of trap tropes. <laughs> also, um, they say it's not that ironic, but there's so much irony. Like, Bet my money on a stupid horse. I lost that. Got my butt. I punched that jockey in his stupid face. There's actually <laughs> kind of like problematic layers to this. If you want to get woke about it, oh, I do feel. Aren't like they the ultimate woke band though? They're not though. That's the thing. They're oh. just one of them is trans. Oh. Everyone wears like a big nose. Well, on stage I thought if you're trans, it's like automatic win. wokeness. Won the game. I don't know. I. I'm just kidding. I've stepped away <laughs> from that game for a while. I'm just kidding. Um, but I can I comment on something that mm-hmm. I hope offends nobody, but probably will offend everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like some of the presentation of Laura Les is femininity as infantilization. Who's Laura Les? The uh, trans woman in 100 Gek. Uh, like, why am I? I love 100 Gek. I don't know why I'm doing this, but it's also like just fun. But it's like I punched that jockey in his stupid face, and it's like. Because I'm so unthreatening that I can, like, do whatever I want and, like, I can't really hurt anybody. Right. And that, like, violence is, like, a trap trope and they do it, like, ha-ha. 
Mm. Yeah, but I, f- I regret saying that already, but maybe it should have been said. I don't know. Well, I mean, all all art should be subject to critique Intense and commentary. Stripping you know? of old. What is it that Jeff Van Gundy said the other day? Comparison is the thief of joy. Oh, damn. It's a basketball commentator. Everyone was silent. <laughs> wow, wow, Jeff. Oh, man. Sports broadcasters have been upping their uh, vocabulary recently. I think it's because of the internet. I've been listening. I listened to two podcasts by some of our uh, friends at the pod at the Gray Zone uh, where they had some sports people on. Um, so they had Red Spin Sports on, on Ben and Max's podcast. Mm. Red Spin Sports? What is it Communist Athletics? Yeah. What, how does that work? It was really cool, actually. Okay, I'll check it out. Um, it just took my mind a second to, like, They were that. basically, like, talking about, um, like, ownership in, like, sports and, like, also, like, the exploitation of, like, college players yeah, oh Both yeah. of the ones I, I listened to were talking about how college basketball players don't get paid, and I thought that was insane. Yeah. What well, the heck? Make a big virtue of amateurity. Like, in the I Olympics, know. you couldn't used to be able to do it unless you were in an amateur. Yeah. You know, the, the Catholic ideal of poverty? <laughs> Not just Catholic. I feel like we've discussed, we've touched yeah, briefly, so these yeah, tropes yeah. are familiar. So, uh, so your sister's a college basketball player yeah, she's now. getting that full ride. She's got like 12 a month as like spending much like oh, so now they do get kind of paid yeah they get a good deal but some of them make the schools so much money they basically right the yeah. yeah 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 so they don't make what they're worth yeah yeah because like I, I, the people who like are in charge of college basketball like they are very like they're raking it yeah well i i, I don't know i assume so yeah. someone's ma- making money but it's more like i thought yeah i don't know yeah, they should defs uh, pay. And maybe maybe get your sister to like uh, yeah. start a campaign. <laughs> it's, not very, it's funny, I mentioned UBI and she roasted me at the dinner table. Like, of course you want UBI. How else are you going to make money? It was <laughs> so humbling. <laughs> it was like, oh, it was so funny though. Oh, man. Uh, well, you know. I just what? burst out laughing. We were all on Zoom and I was telling her about how we we're going to get in a member of parliament on. And she oh, my God. Oh well,. I mean, Yang was, like, also, like, one of his things was also to pay the college basketball players. Yeah, so he's ahead of every curve. And the, that's, that's definitely, I think they should definitely get paid. I, I think one of the things is they weren't allowed to have endorsement deals. Right, 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 yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's ridiculous. It's not chill. Pay him. Yeah. That's I, mean, I have like no influence in that world, but still. I have a lot of pull <laughs> in the sports world. I'll send some tweets out. Send some, yeah. It, hey guys, if I'm wrong about the 100 gex things, just absolutely fuck me up in the comments. I won't probably won't read them, but just do it, okay? Yeah. Um, just unload. Just pump me. <laughs> it's uh, it's the podcast fetish. Uh, <laughs> you know, Joe Rogan. Are you a a, a bad girl? <laughs> I haven't still haven't seen that part, but that's funny. Mila was describing to me when Joe asked Miley if uh, if she was a uh, bad. Are girl. you a b- are you a bad girl? He's trying like <laughs> not to sound like flirtatious. I I loved it. I thought that was such a good moment in the in what the. What did she say? I think like she was talking about her relationships and like how she's. Uh, like cold or like she. she oh, I must have almost got there. I remember that part. Yeah, yeah. and <laughs> then she, when it's over, she doesn't give a fuck. Yeah, that's crazy. I know. I feel like I kind of get that though. 
like i have like a but i do have like a morning period where like i go absolutely nuts Mm -hmm. and then after that then i'm like okay bye yeah um that's that's how it's gotta be i just let it drag on i think (laughs) i think i enjoy simpery more than genuine intimacy I think yeah, I, I think like I'm fucked. <laughs> sort of thing. <laughs> Dostoevsky like writing in the time of the sim. That would be crazy. I'd be Dude, so curious I like to see what good. he'd say. But I do think like people like like the process. Like it's kind of fun to of idealizing someone. Yeah, like having an unattainable goal. Yeah, it's very inspiring for your imagination. Yeah. Yeah, like once you like get set in the comfort, then you know. Are we switching? Yeah, okay. we have our guests now, so we're going to go to that. And uh, yeah, let's hit it. Hello, everybody. So now we're taking it to the interview. Uh, we're here with Andre Domiz. He's a journalist and a contributing editor for McLean's Magazine. He's written on issues such as policing and racial profiling, uh, U.S.-Haiti relations, and pop culture. Uh, really awesome writer, so definitely check him out. Uh, how's it going, everybody? Uh, I'm doing well. How are you doing? Good, good. How's, how's, how's life, good. Ken? I'm good. Good to be here. Yeah, as well as can be expected, uh, you know, as, uh, even though uh, we're trying to act like we're no longer in a pandemic, like it was just over or something, like that was so, you know, six months ago, we kind of still are in the middle of a pandemic, I and know. everyone's just trying to pretend that, like, normalcy is a thing that can be attained again. So, yeah, doing good. Everything, <laughs> psycholog- everything is psychologically, like, parfait, just perfect. Yeah, I know. I mean, I... It's it's funny. I I was recalling, like I was thinking about what uh, you were saying before when you were on System Update, when you were saying how like before we didn't really know that like wearing masks would prevent the spread. And I feel like now that we're like learning about what we can actually do, then you know we're kind of relaxing a little bit. But I do think a second wave is coming, so I'm kind of bracing myself a little. Yeah, it seems to be the case that just about everywhere that has quote-unquote reopened their economy, Mm -hmm. uh, that a second wave has hit. Uh, In Ontario, like, we're we're sort of in denial about... Uh Uh-oh. Bet my money. Hello, hello. Hello. Technical difficulty. Hello, hello. Hey. Oh, here. hang on one second here. No, no problem. We, uh, it's, it's also in the pandemic, it's also the age of technical difficulties. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, which is not great. Um, so we were, uh, we're having you on to talk, we're going to be talking about some of the, the protests that have been going on. There's been a lot of sensationalism in the media. Um, about things and obviously people haven't been getting a full picture um so you've been attending and and reporting on these protests um in ontario and toronto um well i've been i've been attending the protests i haven't really been uh doing a lot of reporting on it i feel like my responsibility is to to show up and, and show support i don't know that right now my role is to to do the reporting i i i think that there are because, you know, I'm an opinion journalist, like I, I'm a, uh, you know, a, a contributing editor, I do op-eds. 
-hmm. And I, I think the, uh, the straight reporting is best left to the people that that's their, that's their career route, their career choice. And uh, I'm trying to exit the, the whirlpool of punditry on, on the protests. And I'm decided, like, I decided that I was just going to write a book about it instead. It's going to take me a little while to get through. Like, uh, I'm, I'm actually way behind on uh, where I want it to be as far as, uh, you know, getting through the book, what the protests mean, uh, co-optations of the protests, and so on. But I felt like being in the the day-to-day, the -day, like, constant mill of information and disinformation about what the protests mean, about what it means to... Uh, to engage in anti-racism right now, I, I, I just kind of felt like I was getting tired of hearing my own voice, and I was get, I was getting tired of the uh, the constant back and forth, and the shifting of the dialectics. So for the most part, I haven't been doing uh, journalism on the protests. I've been more talking about uh, like the broader political picture. Uh, although this this month, I've actually done did a little bit of focus on you know what what happens when. Uh, particular parts of especially Canadian pop culture, especially hockey is forced to grow up. Uh, like the, uh, the, the, the culture that we normally associate with hockey and then what's been happening with the, uh, the protests over the last few months, what happens when the two are finally forced to, uh, to reconcile with one another. Um, so I went and interviewed uh, you know, a few uh, black hockey players um, and my colleague Matthew M has, has, has also done amazing work interviewing players as well. But um, what I'm trying to get at now is what does it mean for Canadian culture when we're forced to deal with something that we've mostly been able to avoid or sweep under the rug, which is anti-black racism. You know, Canada is a country that's not well known for its history of anti-black racism. Oftentimes we get, you know, uh, patted on the head and called America's nicer younger brother. But uh, there's there's a, a deep-seated undercurrent of white supremacy that runs through this country and a deep-seated undercurrent of um, genocidal and capitalist exploitation. And the two go hand in hand. So that's, that's what I'm trying to work on right now. I'm trying to work, I'm trying to work through those contradictions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think um, that's definitely something that we know far less about or that it's more associated with the US. I think, you know, even recently, I, I was reading that in Toronto, um, like black people in Toronto are more likely to be 20 times more likely to be shot by the police. Mm -hmm. And I had no idea about that because when we hear about police shootings, we often only hear about it in the American context. So mm -hmm. even, even in these protests, um, they started in the US, they started with an American event. Um, do you notice uh, like what kind of similarities and differences do you notice between Canada and the U.S. and its histories? Well, and one of, I mean, there aren't, thematically, there aren't a lot of differences. Uh, Canada has historically gotten by on its ability to separate itself from these like first order conflicts that, that happened in the U.S. So, for example, um, during the, uh, the Jim Crow period, there were like leagues of Americans that were uh, fleeing the violence of Jim Crow, especially in the Midwest and were uh, coming into the prairies. And w one thing that we tend to not know is that there, there was uh, uh, like an, uh, there was a branch of black Americans that immigrated into the prairies 
and then under the Wilfrid Laurier government were systematically uprooted and deported back to the United States. So we like to think of ourselves as like the last stop on the Underground Railroad. That's the history that we that we know and that we're proud of. Mm-hmm. But the history that we don't know that we're, we, we seem to, I don't know if it's a matter of uh, pride or shame or embarrassment or guilt or what, but we bury those, those secrets. We bury the fact that, um, you know, during a uh, British war with the Maroons in Jamaica, you know, we, we did have uh, Africans uh, exiled from Jamaica into uh, the Acadian provinces and uh, they stayed there for, uh, I mean, it wasn't, it was, it was hardly a couple of winters, uh, but then they were redeported to Sierra Leone. Uh, Desmond Cole covers that partially in his book, The Skin We're In, uh, but there's also a really good book uh, by Rumi Chopra called Almost Home that covers the, uh, the, the Maroon Rebellion, the exile, the deportation uh, to uh, Nova Scotia, and then uh, uh, redeported to Sierra Leone. Those are histories that we're not that familiar with. We're not that familiar with the um, uh, the, uh, the 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 fact that in British Columbia, uh, you know, the uh, second premier of British Columbia was uh, was partially black himself, and wanted to set up British Columbia as a mecca for Black Americans, and that was met with hostility and outright violence by uh, white people in British Columbia as well. So there is a, a plentiful anti-black history in this country. But uh, we're not very good at dealing with it or remembering it. Whereas in the United States, they're very familiar with their anti-Black history. Uh, and you can talk about whether it's being dealt with in a healthy fashion or not, but at least they remember. Yeah, that I mean, none of those things. I don't remember any of these things in our curriculum at all growing. I don't know if you would remember yeah. any of that. Yeah, I mean, I feel like we learn about Indigenous stuff. Um, a little bit more in the curriculum, but I, I I do think that there's a huge issue in the education system right now where we're really not being exposed to our history. And I, I think that part of it is like people have, they tie their self-esteem to like a sense of national identity and they don't want to conceive of themselves as like having that sort of past maybe. Um, but it is interesting that the U.S. is better able to contend with it. Um, Do you see a sort of similarity between the protests right now in Canada and the ones in the US? Or are they uh, like, are they protesting the same thing? And are they asking for the same things or? I mean, there are similar requests being made. Uh, What we're seeing is uh, abolish the police. Um, That has sort of metamorphosed and, and some people say that it's it's a watering down and some people say well no it is part of abolishing the police but there's a request to defund the police but then <clears throat> what we can agree on at the very least that this is a deliberate watering down is the request to reform the police and the thing is police cannot be reformed um it's it's like when i was uh, I, I did a few interviews um during the uh, the early portions of uh, the protests and I was being asked by multiple radio hosts, okay, but what does this mean? Abolish the police, what does that mean? What would that even look like? You know, or what, what does it mean to defund the police? And it's, it's right there in the statement. Abolish the police means abolish the police. Defund the police means defund the police. You can't make it much simpler than that. But what they're asking for, and what I, what I see often happen, is that they're asking for somebody to translate the, uh, the, the radical nature of the request, the radical nature of the protests themselves, and they're looking for somebody that belongs to 
whether it's the, uh, the, like the petty bourgeois elements or the intelligentsia or whatever you want to call it, the elite, they're looking for somebody to translate the language of the oppressed and the radical politics into words that the oppressor can hear without being frightened by them. And I've, I've been seeing that happen over and over when people say things like, well, what are your tangible goals or what is your tangible action plan? They always, they love to use the word tangible. They love to use the word concrete. Well, what does this actually mean? And it's because they, they can't hear the request as the request of itself. It has to be done in a way that makes the oppressor or the ruling class more comfortable. And I've been seeing that a lot happen a lot in Canada. And what I'm actually, you know, really heartened by is that a lot of people refuse to play that game. And the people that are trying to play along with that game get shut down immediately. You know, like there's a couple of journalists, uh, you know, black journalists that I don't have any personal problem with. As a matter of fact, I like them. So I'm not going to, you know, call people out by name here. But there were a couple of black journalists that I did see say things like, um, well, you know, uh, defund the police or abolish the police is, is bad branding. You know, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't play well. We, we need to use, use a language that actually makes sense to the average Canadian. And they were shut down immediately on social media when they were trying to make that attempt to translate the language into something that, that people who don't belong to that oppressed class can hear properly. So I think, like, I think the, the, the movement's been holding the line uh, fairly strong. And I think that everybody who at the very least agrees that the police are a, a dangerous element, at least towards our class people, that uh, no one's willing to give any ground on this whatsoever. And I'm, I'm really happy for that. And I, I, see that, I see that in the States as well, except that they've got, I think, a much larger sort of, uh, I don't know if you want to call them like petty bourgeois or like uh, millionaire class element to them. I'm thinking of, for example, like the NBA players uh, going on their brief wildcat strike. And when... Um, the Milwaukee Bucks refused to take the court against the Orlando Magic, uh, and this was right after the uh, the Kenosha shooting for, of uh, of Jacob Blake. Um, when the uh, when the Bucks refused to take the court, and the Raptors were already considering not taking the court for they, their game as well because the players were starting to get fed up, what you began to see was sort of like the rumblings of, okay, well, hang on a second, now the NBA players might be getting radicalized as well. And that was like, it was eliminated almost immediately. It was, almost, it was snuffed out almost right away. Uh, when LeBron James made a phone call to uh, former President Barack Obama, and he suggested that they keep playing the games, but they make some concrete demands. So their plan for radical action turns into, well, we're going to uh, turn the, the, the sports arenas into polling stations that people can go there and vote. And say, what the fuck was that? Like, who asked for that? Nobody was asking for more polling stations. I mean, granted, more polling stations is a good thing, but what does that have to do with the matter at hand? You're you're turning the the request uh, for the the dissolution, the defunding, the abandonment of the police state into electoralism, into electoral politics. And if you're diverting that towards a candidate, because I'm assuming that they're not, you know, uh, fans of Donald Trump, if you're diverting that towards a candidate that has already said that regardless of what his constituency wants, he's not going, he's going to veto universalized health care. He's going to provide more funding for the police. He doesn't believe in any sort of abolish the police movement. Then what does that accomplish exactly? And uh, so I would say that in the U.S., they have to deal with quite a bit more of 
um, the, 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 the petty bourgeois elements of black society uh, turning the radicalism of the protests towards reformation, towards basically like comfortable actions that everybody's on board with. Like, it's, it's like they're, they're, trying to still, they're trying to prove their Americanness. It's like, you know, we, we don't want to rock the boat too much. Um, that's, that's not something I think we have to deal with as much or deal with as much in Canada. Uh, because for the most part, uh, we, we don't have that sort of elite class of millionaires and billionaires to contend with. Interesting. I, I had a thought, but you seem like you wanted to. Oh, just, uh, so you are for total abolishment of the police. Myself? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I don't, I think that the, 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 the institution of policing itself, or at least as we know it, were born out of, like historically, were born out of elements of oppressive movements. So if you look at, for example, the, uh, the, the, the Irish Constabulary, which was established by Robert Peel, who was the, uh, the former Home Secretary of, uh, of, of Britain, that was essentially an occupying force. The police have always been an occupying force. So when, when the, uh, the, the policing model was introduced in Britain proper, granted, it's, it's policing its own citizens is not the same as policing citizens or policing people in the colonies. Doesn't work out exactly the same way. The model that we get is the RCMP model. And what, what did the RCMP stem out of? Well, the, the two police organizations that combined to create the RCMP were essentially planes clearers. You know, we're, we're, we're inheriting a genocidal legacy. In the United States, I mean, people hear this one quite often that the police evolved out of slave catchers. So how, how can you take um, how could you take a model uh, that was involved in genocide, that was involved in human trafficking and bondage, and try to reform it into something that... Like, I saw a picture, uh, this was probably last year, of, and I believe this happened in Texas. I wish I'd have had the picture on hand. Uh, if I knew that we were going to be here in the conversation, I would have pulled it up. But uh, I'm pretty sure this happened in Texas, where a couple of police officers on horseback had captured a black suspect, and they were leading him with a rope, like they were, it looked like they were leading him to the station on a rope. And, and uh, there was a bit of an uproar. It, uh, it made waves on social media for about a week or so. You can still see the picture floating every now and then on the timeline. But that, that to me encapsulates what exactly the policing model is. It is this, we're, we're trying to force it into some sense of modernity through these, these reforms that never take, whether it's body cameras, whether it's uh, use of uh, reforming the, uh, the the proper use of force, uh, whether it's uh, you know the the whether it's uh, they're allowed to uh, uh, engage in lethal force with suspects, or whether they're allowed to put people in chokeholds or kneel on their necks, whatever kind of reformatory uh, procedures that you're trying to introduce into this force never decreases the lethality of it. If you look at uh, the, the amount of people that have been killed between 2014, which is when these protests really began to kick off after the killing of Mike Brown, and now, there you don't see a downtick in the police killing of black men. It doesn't matter what kinds of acts that we try to introduce to reform. If they even pass in the first place, it doesn't result in a net decrease. So then my question is, what the fuck are we even doing? Uh, when I see a police officer on a wellness call, try to chop down somebody's front door with an ax to get into their house. 
again, I have to ask, what the fuck are we doing? If, if there's a police officer that's called out to a dorm in British Columbia uh, to do a wellness check and then drags a young woman out by her hair down the hall into the elevator out in the front foyer, and when the young woman tries to raise her head up off the ground, the officer puts her boot on the young woman's head, what the fuck are we doing? If the police show up to a wellness check, whether it's in London, Ontario, or Toronto, Ontario, or wherever it's been happening, and uh, somebody ends up dying as a result of the wellness check, you know, somebody uh, pitches over a balcony, or uh, uh, somebody dies while in police custody, these, these are not procedures that the police, I don't think, were ever meant to be involved with in the first place. And it's not just a failure of policy. To me, it's a failure of humanity uh, that, that people die in police custody this way. Um, so, so, fuck, sorry. Sorry, phone is ringing. Um, is, so if police were abolished, is there any proposal for something to, um, like, kind of, not directly take the place of, but, do you know what, do you know what I'm getting at? Could I just add on to that? Sure, too? yeah. So, so my, my concern as a socialist, um, is, is that if we were to abolish police like I agree with all the premises but then my concern is private privatization of policing so then I'm like wondering like okay if we abolish police as a government institution are we going to end up with like Amazon sponsored like private security guards and to me that's almost worse because I feel like at least if there's public policing you can make demands in theory um whereas like yeah, so that's just, that's my my one concern that's kind of, I guess, aligned. And what model would you propose? Because I assume we share similar economic views. Like, what model would you propose that would avoid that kind of trajectory? Oh, your, your mic is not working. Oh, here you go. No, never mind. Still quiet. Uh, how about now? Can you hear me now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Oh my God, the tech difficulties. Like, it's just not meant to be. I, the thing is, I have I have an evil eye set up right behind me. So my thought is, whatever the tech difficulties are that are uh, that are being caused in this podcast, that, that the evil eye is preventing something even worse from happening. Oh no. <laughs> but no. Uh, yeah, the uh, so it. God, sorry, you said you said something a little while ago about uh, Amazon sponsored police, and I just couldn't get this image out of my head of like a police officer with a with a patch on his shoulder with the Amazon smile, just like beating somebody's ass in the middle of the street. I couldn't fucking imagine that. But, yeah, but that's that's kind of my concern is that if we were to like like it's almost like we're applying some sort of like neoliberal austerity model by defunding or by abolishing so how would like what would a perspective how would like how would you avoid that in in your model of abolition oh well it wouldn't just involve the abolition of police it would be the abolition of incarceration altogether i mean i look at it this way uh and this is going to sound kind of bleak but my thought is if your answer to um the failures of our social model like our system of social relations is to expose people to more violence and then warehouse them. We, we can talk about rehabilitation reform all we want to. What we do know for a fact is that when we put people in prison, it's essentially just removing them from society and making them not societies. It's just it's sweeping the issue under the rug 
you know, where, where are the most of these prisons located? They're most, for the most part, out in rural areas, out of sight, out of mind. Um, and then, on, you know, on top of the fact that they are incarcerated to begin with, then uh, for them to be in contact with their loved ones involves uh, trips way the hell out of the way, or in, in some cases, they're not allowed to have contact whatsoever, uh, except through telecommunication. So we're, we're essentially, even though this is a uh, publicly funded system, we're introducing private elements, um, whether you want in the, uh, in the telecommunications aspect, whether it's in the commissary aspect and so forth, like we are seeding it with private aspects regardless. And to me, it's like, if, if, what, if your answer to the failures of the capitalist system is just to introduce more methods of capitalism into a, a, an already violent milieu, then why not just fucking kill them? Like, honestly, like, why, not, why, not just, why not just a bullet in the head for any petty crime whatsoever? Oh, we, know we, we know that we can't do that because it's, it seems inhumane, it seems cruel, it's barbaric, but if we're going to expose people to, to ever, ever further violence um, while they're warehoused and then release them back into society uh, without having been able to uh, pick up skills, without having to be in communication with people, um, and it, it, it's like dropping somebody into a, a completely different world than they left in the first place. To me, that sort of system of displacement is already violent as is. And it all points to failures along the way in terms of policy and our set of social relations. So if, if somebody commits a petty crime in their teens and, and in both Canada and the United States, Canada where we've got a lot more division between uh, the juvenile system and the adult system, the United States children can be, are routinely charged as adults, their juvenile records can be dug up and so on and so on. But the, the, the system that processes them through uh, juvenile uh, years to their adulthood uh, through the milieu of the criminal justice system is itself a violent system. So it's not just a matter of abolishing policing. It's a matter of abolishing that entire system. What do you replace it with? Well, the, the funding that you're putting towards these state prisons that you're putting towards police officers ought to be put toward, I mean, we can say things like job training, which I find a little bit laughable because if you train somebody for a job, but they still can't get the job uh, regardless, then, then what does that actually do? Uh, if we're going to talk about uh, uh, mental health supports, if we're going to talk about community supports, if we're going to talk about putting funding back in education, we're going to be uh, putting funding back in uh, towards uh, people who have uh, mental health issues, which I don't want to associate with crime, but I do want to associate with things like wellness checks and, and people ending up in police custody out of wellness checks. It's, it's a matter of diverting the funds that we're putting towards policing and incarceration, which takes up huge chunks of municipal budgets. And in Toronto, I believe it's something like a third of the, uh, the municipal budget. I've seen in some smaller municipalities, it take, policing takes up up to like half of the budget. If we're, if we're going to put all of that money towards making people feel safe, the idea that, uh, that, that crime is held at bay, and yet crime still exists, but has been on a downward trajectory since the 1990s, then what we're, what we're, we're doing is spending the money to give people the peace of mind that the problems that we sweep under the rug are not going to wash up on their doorstep is what I'm trying to say. So I don't think that, I mean, I, 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 in, in my perfect world, 
we're, we're not looking at the possibility of privatized police forces because we're addressing the systemic inequities and the social problems that crime arises out of in the first place. And one of the reasons that we're exposed to so much crime and so much fear is because it's required for the system to continue functioning. Like, if you look at stats for any kind of violent crime whatsoever, I believe sexual assault is the exception to this, since the mid-90s, has been on a steady downward trajectory. But what you also find is that uh, for people that are uh, exonerated from prison, like people who are doing like football numbers in prison, 20, 25, 30 years, when they're exonerated, I think it's something like 44% of those uh, exonerated have been black men. So we know that the system warehouses people, but we're also, we also know the system is warehousing innocent people. And that's, that, is, that is a problem to me. Uh, like I said, if we're, if, we're, if we're going to be too humane uh, to just execute people on the spot, then we should extend the humanity further to not warehouse people for lengthy periods of time, exposing them to further violence, knowing that the, the system that we've wrought that was born out of these, these genocidal and uh, racialized uh, uh, systems of oppression um, that fall most hardly on very narrow segments of the population, we just need to do away with them. So like, as a the resident Leninist, I have to think of a transition period. Um, so, so, I mean, I guess like if we think about other socialist countries, for instance, when there's a transition to say like a socialist system that would provide uh, or at least uh, mitigate uh, historic inequities, they've still all like maintained a sort of system of policing to an extent. Um, so in some ways to like suppress counter-revolution um, and other ways to prevent counter-revolutionary violence. Um, and obviously these countries are not the same as us and they, have, they all have different histories. Um, but I, I'm just, I'm thinking about like in the procedure of transitioning, because first of all, like if the idea isn't like, I don't know, like in terms, like I agree that it's, we shouldn't just like mute ourselves and try and make everything like pleasant to like the liberal media class or liberal professional class or whatever. Um, but in the pr process of, of transitioning to this kind of society, um, are there steps along the way to doing this or like, I don't know if that makes sense, but. Well, no, I, I, I see what you're saying, but you know, think of, uh, for example, yeah, think of the Russian revolution. Mm -hmm. the, uh, the, the, the system of policing in Russia is policing Russians. Although, I mean, granted, if you want to expand it out to like the, uh, um, to the uh, the, broader, the broader Soviet Empire, then you could be getting into uh, ethnic uh, differences and, and so on. But we're not in the same kind of milieu. So the okay, I'll put it this way: the same the same police that are handing out challenge coins for killing black suspects, like literally handing out challenge coins for killing people in like little Jamaica, uh, of New York City. How, how then do you reform that into a, uh, a force that 
staves off the tides of counter-revolution. When in the first place, they were indoctrinated into a system that teaches them that communism is the world's greatest evil, right, right on par right. with Nazism. Are you ever going to be able to, to reform them enough that they're going to drop their old habits towards racialized people, towards LGBTQ people? Are they going to, are they, are they going to play ball is my question. Knowing how powerful, for example, like the uh, the York police union is, knowing how powerful the Toronto police union is, do do we think that, uh, let's say, you know, we wake up tomorrow and we're in the midst of revolution, the socialists have won, can we can we keep these systems of policing intact, uh, train them out of their previous indoctrination habits, and not just their training with uh, with with because they don't train very long to become Toronto police in the first place. I'm talking about the lifelong training that they've had within the system that has taught them that indigenous people are less than human, that teaches them that, that, that black people are dangerous, that our customs and habits, the way that we speak, think, and act is foreign to them and not Canadian. Can we train them out of that? And I don't, I don't believe it's possible. So coming from a sort of a, a pan-African socialist perspective myself, I, I don't see how we can maintain the, uh, the, the, the current system, even in a, uh, I don't want to say utopian, but even in like a, a socialist future where uh, some means of state force would be necessary to suppress the elements of counter-revolution. Can it be done with the same system and the same people? I absolutely don't think so. Mm -hmm. Okay. So like, I guess, would there still be some form of like, uh, I guess I'm thinking like, okay, like policing is essentially enforcing the state's monopoly on force, right? And so in, in this other sort of model, there's a few things I see. So one of it is that, you know, we stop making the police have certain roles that we've just assumed that they should have or relegated roles to them. So like wellness checks, I think is a great example. Or like uh, a lot of certain, like a lot of things like drugs, for instance, has never made sense to me for like to be in. Then when it comes to things like terrorism or murder or sexual assault, um, stuff like that, then I feel like then we're talking about something that might be different and that a lot of people are like, uh, like I find it very hard to convince, say, like not necessarily white people, but just like immigrants who come from like a place of terrorism, for instance um that like we cannot have any enforcement mechanisms or guarantees against that and so like i'm wondering is there like a kind of um community policing that's being proposed or something like still some mechanism of enforcement that requires sure. I mean, if we if we want to talk about things like community policing then that would have to be um that would have to be bro broken down to the community level and then that that opens the door for things like restorative and transformative justice, mm -hmm. which we're starting to see some inklings of uh, here in Canada. I know that there are some movements in the United States as well, but um, I, I, I mean, personally, I, I being somebody that um, I would say worries about these things a lot less in my day-to-day -day life than your average woman would, for example, I almost feel like, oh my God, let me not get into like standpoint of cosmology here, but I, I almost feel like it's not, it's not necessarily um, my place to say, well, this is exactly what the system should look like. I think that involves uh, much broader conversations. 
Um, but I do think that there is uh, a possibility for um, policing at least to uh, end, end patterns or systems of violence, uh, separate people, and then open the door or introduce the possibility of transformative justice. And we still have to work on what that would look like. There are, I mean, there are, there are multiple models uh, that we have to choose from. Uh, so I don't think that um, I don't think that the door is closed on enforcing a set of social rules altogether. Okay. But when I say, but when I say abolishing police, I'm talking about what the current system looks like. Okay. And when and when people talk about the end of policing, um, what it gets introduced is other possible models. Like uh, Alex uh, Vitali in his book, The End of Policing, introduces several models of possibility. Um, Angela Davis in uh, prison, and in, in, she's written uh, two really good books that uh, discuss the contours of, of policing and prison abolition. Mm -hmm. And I, I would say, have a look at their works um, and have a look at the, uh, the currently existing models. I just don't know that it's going to be possible to work with, uh, I don't know that it's going to be possible to move towards transformative justice at the same time that we're for, like increasing funding for police. Because now, now, I mean, this is really a first order contradiction. It's like, what do you want to do with, with violent offenders? Do you want to lock people up way forever? Do you want, not just locking people up way forever, but essentially if you're, if you're locking them up, if you're incarcerating them, then they carry the brand with them outside of prison as well. If you, want to apply for a job, especially as an adult, and you have a uh, criminal record, then that's going to follow you. You do have to check, yes, I have uh, been arrested or convicted, I have been incarcerated. And that, that brand continues to follow you. Luckily, we can still vote in Canada uh, with a uh, record of incarceration. But what kind of jobs can you get? When you're kicked out of a, when you're kicked out of a job pool, then this is, where, this is where we understand that recidivism comes from. It's because there are fewer social options available to you so I, I'm, not, I'm not saying there's never going to be a need for enforcing a standard of social rules at any point in the future. What I am saying though, is that the way that we do it now only incurs further harm and creates tomorrow's sets of crimes to begin with. Right. I don't think, I don't think that anything, it's just like you said, where it comes to drug enforcement, I mean, I'm not really, I'm not hip to the idea of drugs uh, being enforced on the user end at all to me it's a it's a it's a matter of health policy it's not a matter of criminal policy if you want to talk about uh things like mental health if you want to talk about things even like like traffic rules like there's there are so many avenues that we've stretched policing into that police have no business being involved in that our answer to just about every uh, social negative social interaction that can um, bleed into criminality is like well the police should be taking care of this and that's absolutely not the case like, we've we've closed down mental health facilities essentially like scattered people out to the street and said here please you take care of this you know we've we've we have uh, police escort landlords to kick people out of their homes if they're behind on rent we have police organizing traffic we have police enforcing drug policy like every every social problem that we refuse to deal with that we under like that i understand at least to be a social failure we're, we're stopping the gap with policing and incarceration and to me that has to end that's not to say that you know enforcing social rules in the future won't require some degree of community policing 
but absolutely not with the current model. So it's kind of like changing the job description of a community enforcer or like what the job would entail kind of thing. Right. But to me, like that, we have to start from scratch on that one. Right. Yeah. Because, because the systems that, like I've said, like the systems that they evolved out of were there for the purpose of cleaning up undesirables from communities of people that didn't want them there in the first place. Mm-hmm. You know, like the, the, the same model of policing that would arrest indigenous people for being out of their communities without the proper pass or that, uh, you know, uh, when the sun was setting on a certain town and Negroes were out at night, uh, that they could get locked up and possibly lynched. Like you can't take a system that evolved out of those roots and try to reform it. You just have to get rid of it altogether and come up with a new one. Hmm. Do you have any thoughts before we move on? Uh, lots, lots to think about. <laughs> um, I, I would, I would point out that maybe, uh, like policing in all parts of the world didn't arise from the same sort of roots, and I think there's some evidence maybe that it can be done differently, uh, which would lead me more towards reform, uh, a sort of thinking. Um, that's just what I'd add. Yeah. Yeah, I think, but I think what was the interesting point is like, we're in dealing with our context, it's like, yeah, I think it's like, it's definitely, I think the history We've tried almost everything though. I mean, we're, we're even coming, we're coming around full circle to uh, people writing op-eds that if black people want to reform the police, then they should try becoming police officers. These were, these were answers that people were coming up with in the 19 fucking 60s. Mm-hmm. And if in the span of 60 odd years, we still haven't solved the problem or even come anywhere close to arriving at a solution for the problem, and that tells me that it's just the model itself that's broken. Right. So more, I, I totally dig this, like in the sense that like we need to be more imaginative because I feel like we're lacking a lot of imagination in politics and repeating the same discourses and i think that's definitely think um, of think of like a policing and incarceration almost like a drain pipe you know it's all it's like it's like all of or like a like a grease trap in a restaurant like all of the social problems that we refuse to deal with just get scraped over the edge of this trap and end up in this like this this fucking sewage this this uh this 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 container that we call policing and incarceration so where it comes to education, where it comes to uh, community infrastructure, everything from roads and sewers to, to schools and libraries, where it comes to uh, the uh, capitalist model that has people working 10, 12 hours out of the day or working multiple jobs and not being able to meet a satisfactory standard of living. And then having like finding other avenues to make money so that they can actually fucking live while there's a class of people that continues to accumulate and accumulate and accumulate while everybody else is fucking struggling. And we've had uh, periods of time where equality or inequalities as large as the ones that we have now have ended in violent revolution. So knowing all of that and also knowing that we uh, are continuing to create more laws uh, that are more stringent expanding our definitions of terror to the point where people that are engaging in uh, freedom of speech, engaging in the act of protest, whereas say 40, 50, 60 years ago, they might have ended up uh, spending a night or two in prison, uh, but now they're looking at some serious federal charges 
for engaging in the very same acts of rebellion against an unjust social system. It, 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 should, it should tell you that the model that we've ended up with now is there to ossify the social failures that we refuse to, that we continue to refuse to acknowledge. So to me, it's not just the model of policing, it's the model of social relations altogether that we have not only like it's not a matter of just a failure of political imagination and policing but we've snuffed out the possibility of of a political imagination that moves beyond capitalism altogether like to me these are all byproducts of the same broken and exploitative system that works for a few people but oppresses many others if that makes sense mm -hmm. oh you look like you're gonna say something but no, I'm thinking let's move on. Oh, okay. No. <laughs> um, yeah, I I definitely, yeah, I think that's true. And I, I recently read uh, Angela Davis, Our Prison's Obsolete, and I thought it was, like, really moving. But, yeah, at the end part, like, when she talks about um, that, like, South African family that uh, took, like, that took in, or, like, became close with the people that like killed their son and whatever, you know, the part I'm, I'm not recalling it correctly because my brain is like broken, but um, I like, I read that part and I was thinking like, right yeah. now we're functioning correctly, like in any capacity whatsoever. I forget my kids' names occasionally. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. And so, I mean like that I think is just extraordinary. And I think like, a lot of people would struggle with that, you know, like, I think, especially people who are not thinking, like, deeply about these questions, um, and just, like, we have a very sort of retributive attitude, and so there's so much different kinds of reimagining that we have to think about, and I, I just started law school, and we were learning about, like, the indigenous models of restorative justice, which are so, like, it's just crazy to me that now we're only sort of like integrating this into the legal curriculum because it's so fascinating and like just really outside of the box of what we're used to. So I would so. actually, I would, I would recommend you have a, a, a lengthy chat with somebody like Heidi Matthews. Um, she spends a lot of time thinking about this stuff as well. Uh, you know, not, not just uh, policing and incarceration, but the way that we think of like uh, crimes and the way that we criminalize uh, social interactions altogether. Um, yeah, which I was a lot of people the wrong way, but uh, you know, that's I mean, if if, if for somebody that has had uh plenty of experience uh seeing what um incarceration, at least on the international criminal court level, does to stigmatize uh African people in particular, um, and then carrying that logic out to well, this is like the the very same thing that I was seeing with uh you know, these, these, these uh, prurient sort of like uh, uh, testimonies and um, investigations, uh, the way that they've uh, essentially like created a larger stigma around Africa and African people and, and politics on the continent um, and have used the court essentially to wash away European complicity in conflicts on the continent. And now we're carrying some of those very same logics into our everyday conversations. It's fucking scary. Um, I, I would say, like, you know, have, have some conversations with her because she's, she's I, I would say, ahead of most people um, in, in terms of uh, how we think about uh, uh, crime, criminality, and incarceration. 
Yeah, she's brilliant. And and I, what what this got me thinking of is she wrote this critique of Me Too and how it's like this untenable sort of model of seeking um, like justice for people who have experienced sexual assault and like the sort of limitations of testimony. And it, it kind of made me think of how carceral logic kind of bleeds out into, like you were saying, social interactions with one another and it's like we kind of practice we we engage in the same kinds of practices almost and the same yeah, like, things, like yeah trial so to speak she, she took a lot of flack for that and i think what people were missing was that you know she she wasn't saying that uh me too is bad she was saying that as a political strategy mm-hmm. it doesn't work. and i think that you know uh for example look at uh joe biden um, and the allegations that were levied against him. And then you had people that were, I mean, thinking of, for example, like Alyssa Milano, like prominent Me Too activists, just completely reversing themselves on their logic the moment that it's not convenient for their, their, uh, their, their political game or their political strategy, when it's not convenient for them, they'll just drop all of that. Mm-hmm. And I think Heidi was ahead of most people in saying, well, this is exactly what's going to happen if we use it as a political strategy. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, extending the conversation further um, to, you know, abolition and, and so on. Yeah, I, I, I will say that um, I found abolition democracy to be the more, at least for me, the more uh, well thought out of Angela Davis's uh, two sort of treatises on abolition. And, um, you know, she invites the reader to think about the way that we've uh, let, for example, like the war on terror and the ways that we think about terror infect every uh, level of our thinking. To the point where, I mean, think about the fact that when uh, the right wing is addressing these protests, what are they calling them? They're saying that these BLM terrorists are trying to destroy our country. If you look at the um, uh, the RNC uh, just last, well, two weeks ago now, no, it was last week, it was last week, God, like I have no sense of temporality anymore. Everything's, everything's warped. But I... Uh, when when the speakers were getting up on that podium and, and talking about uh, the protests and Joe Biden being a, a far left radical and letting the radicals take over the party, radical this, radical that, destroy the country this, you're not going to recognize your country anymore that, what what they're saying is, sim- is a simple culmination of something that we kind of let ourselves be dragged into the eddying currents of since the early 2000s, which is how we think of, how we think of terror. Yeah. At, at, at one point, uh, Terror used to be when, uh, you know, violent conflict is brought into a civilian milieu. Uh, oftentimes it has nothing to do with those civilians whatsoever. But when essentially you've militarized the public sphere and made civilians target, now we think of terror as anything that disrupts our sense of social order. So it's easy to say BLM terrorists when all along the way, I mean, the uh, even liberal Democrats, even you know progressives, were playing into this language, were playing along with the idea that any sort of conflict uh, that just scares us as Americans, anything that uh, disrupts our our sense of safety, our, our our sense of well-being, but also our view of the world as being ultimately just, we can just go ahead and call that terror. Uh, I'm thinking of, for example, uh, when uh, Muammar Gaddafi was being called a terrorist and lead, a leader of a terrorist nation. And the terror that was inflicted on Libya, especially in, in uh, the ouster uh, and brutal murder of Gaddafi in the streets. Yeah, we were just... That, that to me was the most 
that was the most heinous and horrifying act of terror that I think I saw in my lifetime. Because that not, that was not only an attack on a uh, uh, on on civilians; it was an attack on the social fabric of an entire country mm-hmm. to rent yeah. the whole thing apart and remake it in the U.S. or at least the attempt to remake it in the image of the U.S. and Europeans. But what ends up as a result is open air slave markets in the middle of the street. So yeah. To, yeah, like to me, the, the inability to consider um, how terror is inflicted and upon whom, uh, and it, it, it being relegated to, well, brown people that make us feel unsafe or uh, black people that make us feel unsafe, and then liberals going along with this model the entire time, I don't see how anybody can look at the Republican uh, National Convention and see how it could have gone any other way. We fed into that the whole way. Right. And... I have to say, as a um, Middle Eastern person, I'm a little, uh, Black Lives Matter has been stealing our terrorist thunder. The <laughs> <laughs> BLM's out here stealing your terrorist valor? Oh, damn. Yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, uh, we like to be the center of attention all the time. <laughs> you better get on the phone and call somebody. <laughs> Um, yeah, no, basically, I, I, I think, you know, ter- like the term terrorist is a very, uh, like, racialized term uh, as well. And, but I, I also think that there's a, there's a way that some liberals are trying to counteract that by, like, being like, okay, well, this mass shooting is necessarily terrorism as well. If it's, like, a white guy and it's like, okay, we want to call, just call everything terrorism and whatever. Right. And I feel like now it just has no political meaning at all. There, there is none whatsoever. And, and I, I get what people are trying to do. And they, they do the same thing, for example, when uh, a white person who was exhibiting behavior that could have gotten a black person killed, let's say, like during a traffic stop or during an interaction with the police, that, oh, okay, well, he walked away safe and sound. And I'm like, yes, that's true. But that should happen all the time. So the, uh, you know, when you say that, well, if, if it was a black person, they would have gotten three to the dome. Like, yeah, that, that is true. But that's still reinforcing the idea that police ought to be the arbiters of violence. So it's like, but I want them to exercise violence in this direction. And I know that's not what people are saying, but it, it kind of does play into the model regardless. Right. So and my, the my question is, yeah, this is my question is, well, if, if uh, this person was having an interaction with the police that bordered on violence in the first place, mm-hmm. why, were, why, did, why did the police need to be there in the first place? What was it that led up to this person having an interaction with police to begin with? The failures of policy were every step of the way that led up to the interaction. The failure isn't that this person got away without having violence done to them and this person died. I mean, that, that is the ultimate failure, but there were failures several steps along the way that lead up to that interaction. I think that's what we ought to also concern ourselves with. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I, I, hmm? Sorry, Reese. No, no. <laughs> Sorry, it was too, too many technical difficulties. Yeah, I, I, I think that's true. And I think, um, you know, what's kind of lacking is a sort of universalist project and where we're saying okay like we want this sort of system that's going to make us all free like we don't want to just like reinforce or like turn things into like just okay well no we want the police to enforce brutality equally Mm -hmm. or whatever um 
And I, I, I recently, I've, I, I wonder what you make of this critique because recently there's been, um, people have been upset at the Black Lives Matter movement because they are not addressing the when police kill white people as well. I, and well, I, I, I mean, like, I just, I don't, like, how would you, how do you typically respond to that? Uh, the way that I just responded to you, laugh. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> okay. So here's, um, I'm going to put this. One thing, and I, I actually have seen this critique come from people on the left as well. And it, it, it makes me laugh because people seem to think that black people are just people that happen to have a different color. So the, our, our, the social interactions that we have on a day-to-day -day basis, uh, the way that we engage in our culture with each other and people outside of the culture, uh, the way that the systems and people who represent the system responds to us, that all of these are basically just the same experiences, except that if you look at statistics, I mean, things seem to be a little bit off, a little bit hinky, and it's like, no, it's not that whatsoever. You know, we, we uh, aren't born out of a vacuum. We are the product of literally hundreds of years of systemic subjugation and dehumanization. Now that's not all that we are because I really hate when people look at, uh, and I saw this happen a lot during the, uh, the political primaries. I've seen this a lot from people on Bernie's side when, um, uh, when South Carolina voters voted for Joe Biden, they're like, well, they're voting against their best interests. This is the architect of the, uh, the 1994 crime bill. I mean, how could they possibly? And it's like, well, if you're just looking at black people through the lens of their own pathology, you could possibly arrive at that conclusion, but then that's how you fucked up and got here in the first place. Um, I, I, I don't even really know the solution to that. I, I think that for people on the left to take seriously a, 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 any sort of coalition or broad-based political project that involves people of different backgrounds working together, then you are going to have to expose yourself to thinkers, authors, radicals, speakers, you are going to have to get yourself involved in the history. You're, you're going to have to really understand black folks from where they're at. BLM doesn't, I mean, the reason that you don't see black people uh, in these broad movements talking about police violence against white people is because that, for the most part, exists as a class-based mode of violence. Like from one class of people to another class of people belonging to the same racialized category. There's, that happens within the milieu of whiteness. Now, we sort of exist at the intersection of class, and race, also gender, and many other intersections. I don't want to get too deeply into that, but these aren't additive properties. You can't just take poor plus black plus male or middle class plus black plus woman, and then come up with a determinable outcome. Like, if you want to call it multiple modes of oppression, if you want to call it intersectionality or whatever, these aren't additive aspects. Society responds to us differently based on the categories that they put us in to begin with. I'll give you an example. A person who is 
gay, black, and male is going to be looked at, and I'm not just making this up, this is actually like proven in, in a couple of papers that have come out in the last uh, uh, two to three years, that a, uh, a gay, black male in the workplace is going to be looked at differently than a, a black male who's perceived as heterosexual in the workplace. The, the, the black male who's heterosexual is gonna be perceived as threatening in the workplace. Uh, they have, uh, where it comes to job interviews, where it comes to uh, promotions, where it comes to interactions in the workplace, that oftentimes ends up worse for the other uh, black male who's perceived as heterosexual. Why? Because he's perceived as dangerous. Why is he perceived as dangerous? Well, because of hundreds of years of social conditioning that teaches people that black males are dangerous. So uh, if we're not addressing problems that exist outside of these categories of racialization, that's because we have enough to deal with on our own. Now, are black people talking about police violence as a whole? Like, is this a problem no matter who it affects? Yes, there are. Why does it arise, or why does a movement arise out of black people being brutalized and killed by police? Because there is a very specific form of brutalization that we encounter that other people don't. And if you can't understand that, then I'm afraid you're just gonna have to do the reading to understand why. But expecting us to carry the weight of that conversation as it affects everybody while we're already carrying the weight of the conversation as it affects us specifically which is fucking traumatic to deal with and experience on a day-to-day -day basis tells me that you don't really have empathy it's almost like you're looking for a way to delegitimize the work that people are doing because it doesn't affect you personally i, I don't see how somebody who has any compassion for other human beings and knowing that they have their own modes of oppression. The ways that they're going to be treated are never going to be the way that you're treated. I don't see how you can look at that and say, well, why aren't you doing the work for us too? Like that's, that's pretty fucking foul. Yeah. I, I mean, the way that I likened it to is like, you know, when they're in, in January, for instance, like when the U S was upping its aggression against Iran and mm -hmm. I went to a protest. I'm not Iranian, um, and I was saying like, okay, well, like, there is definitely aggressions going on. Like, people are like, oh, what about you know, like your own people or whatever. And I was thinking, okay, yes, but like right now in this moment, there is an escalation that's ramping up against Iranians. And so like, that's what I'm going to fixate on. That doesn't mean that I support war on mm -hmm. these other, that doesn't mean I support war in Lebanon, obviously. Um, but I, it, it does mean that like, this is the issue at hand. And there's, there's something that I tend to see a lot, um, especially like, uh, unfortunately, in, in a lot of Middle Eastern communities where, like, while these protests were happening, people were saying, like, oh, well, what about the Muslims in this country, and what about this, and what about this? Yeah. And, I mean, I, I do think it is important to, like, connect solidarities, and I think that, like, for instance, there is room for solidarity between say like working class white people and um, like racialized people who are brutalized by the police as well because I do think they do tie into each other. Um, but yeah, I, def I definitely think there's like a, there's a sort of like, people get triggered when like you don't focus on like everything at once. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, and it's just like there's so much like uh, evil shit going on in the world. How could you possibly focus on everything? Now, I mean, that's not to say that to your point, there are points of solidarity. Like I'm, I'm somebody who vehemently supports rights for Palestinian people that supports decolonization in Palestine. I'm support. I'm somebody that vehemently supports decolonization on Turtle Island or what we call North America. Like I, I, I do believe in giving land back to indigenous peoples uh, of the nations that form what we now call Canada, the United States and elsewhere. Um, and I, 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 I do, for example, work with uh, Red Nation. Like I was, I was recently introduced as a member of the Red Nation. And I'm at least in, in the organizations that I'm a part of, I try, to, I try to introduce aspects of each to another. Uh, you know, uh, with um, the IWW, I have mentioned to them like, hey, there are protest movements happening here, or hey, would it be possible that we could reach out to some of these organizations and find out how we can support, et cetera, et cetera. Because I, I do believe that broad-based working class solidarity is absolutely necessary if we do want to change anything. Um, but that doesn't mean that we can't do advocacy for ourselves as well. Uh, yeah, so while yeah. there's, there's room in, in, and I have a very, very tight schedule. Like I, you know, I have a full-time job. I'm a graduate student. I, I, I'm a journalist on top of that. And I have a family. I've got, I've got a, a, a fiance. I've got twin daughters. Like there's a whole lot of shit that I'm up to. But in the, the amount of time that I can squeeze out, I, I try to do my absolute best to um, do advocacy for people that are also uh, oppressed, marginalized, et cetera, that I feel like as a human being that is benefiting from being at the heart of empire, that's the least that I can do. And I think that most people who are involved in a lot of these movements are also doing the very same thing. But if you see a movement arise, that is, uh, if you want to call it narrowed to the matter of uh, blackness and engaging in anti-racism work to stop anti-blackness, well, that's because that's, it's absolutely necessary. It, it's the same as, as any other movement. There are going to be specific people affected by specific modes of oppression, and something has to arise to counter those modes of oppression. Yeah, so, so I want to get to co-optation because I- Okay, this, there we go. This is my little pet project. Um, uh, I don't want we, we should actually have a longer conversation about this off the podcast because uh, I feel like we I, I feel like we'd be able to benefit from each other's notes. Yes, we should. We should. And so I'll I'll message you after that. <laughs> but um, do you do you have anything to say? No. Okay. Um, I so something like this this critique that I've been seeing, especially on the left right now, is a lot of people are worried that uh, Black Lives Matter is now becoming like a sort of wing of the Democratic Party. And we kind of saw the Democrats trying to like take this on as well because like, like I, they had the video at their convention. You had, you had members of the Black Lives Matter organization getting involved in the Democratic primaries. Yeah, and so I was gonna mention it as well, like one of the founders endorsed Elizabeth Warren and uh, there's like now people are talking about Soros. I mean, Soros always ends up in every conversation. First, yeah, I, I mean, I, I want to know where my Soros dollars are personally. Mm -hmm. uh, Azur Soros apparently like has his, his hands in everything, and that's uh, it's whatever. I mean, that that is almost like background radiation. Like you're going to in any sort of like 
movement that is counter to the, the neoliberal status quo, you're always going to have George Soros in the conversation because people's fucking anti-Semitism is going to leak uh, out wherever it can. Um, but to the matter of uh, co-optation, it's not just a matter of, okay, so if, if somebody has a political candidate that they support, I don't necessarily see a problem with that. The problem that I see with that is when the, the politics of black liberation are then diverted into electoral democracy. It's a bourgeois electoral politics. That's a huge problem for me because every radical thinker that I'm aware of has at some point pointed out the dangers of trying to move black liberation into the, the milieu of electoralism and electoral politics. Like this is something that we were supposed to be aware of the dangers of back well before the civil rights era. Like we, we would have to go all the way back to like uh, uh, to the original like Pan-African Congress to talk about this. Another problem that I have is the, okay, there's almost like a two modes of political engagement engagement that we've allowed ourselves, uh, at least aside from street protests. But even that in a way, I wouldn't, I, I don't know if I would call it co-opted, but it's starting to become barricaded in by the kinds of protests that people should feel good about engaging in. So people should feel good about a Black Lives Matter slogan in front of Trump Tower and dancing on it, but they shouldn't feel good about a police station burning down or a Wendy's burning down because property damage is a bridge too far. And I'm not saying that uh, anybody in, in BLM thinks that, I'm just saying that's what sort of the, the mainstream conversation has, as, as everything has sort of settled to the bottom and our, our discourse is becoming slightly ossified, we are starting to have these divisions between what we call peaceful protest and non-peaceful protest or violent protest. I reject these categories altogether. Protest is protest. Whatever means of protest that you feel that you need to engage in as an oppressed person should be a means that's available to you. doesn't matter how you decide to go about it. I don't, if, if property is destroyed in the process of protest, it's fucking property. It's not a human being. It's not a life. Property doesn't have rights. Property doesn't have a beating heart. Property can't be killed. Property is just property. It is something that somebody else has claimed to be theirs, but within a context of operating inside of a community. So when they say, for example, that, well, smashing in the windows of somebody's delicatessen is not going to uh, get people on your side. Well, the question is, the owner of that delicatessen, are they a member of the community or not? Do they support what the community supports or not? If a uh, Walgreens or a Target gets smashed up and destroyed, are they part of the community or are they a, uh, a, a drain on the community? Is it something that exists inside of a geographic boundary that you can call a community? Is it putting more in than it's actually extracting? And I would say the answer is the latter. It is it, the former. It is extracting more than it, than it puts in. A Target in the middle of a black community that gets destroyed in the course of a protest also deserves to be protested against because that target represents a mode of oppression against people that live in that community. The people that work in the target, do they have uh, an equal stake? Are they paid the same as the, as the, uh, as the board? Uh, do they have control over the hours that they work? Do they have uh, all of the, uh, the, the, the fought for rights and obligations that the company owes them? Or have those been subtly whittled down over time? 
to the point where an employee can be fired at will. To me, uh, a target in the middle of a black community that gets destroyed should be destroyed. To me, a police station uh, in the middle of a community that is protesting police violence, especially coming from that particular precinct, should be destroyed. Um, if we want to talk about co-optation now, the, the co-optation becomes or factors in when you have people that work for, say, larger corporations, uh, people that consume things uh, that are produced by large corporations believe that those corporations have some degree of social responsibility and should exercise that responsibility by standing in solidarity with that movement. I don't know if people don't realize this or if they're just purposefully ignorant of it, but when that large private entity begins parroting your language, but engages in the same systemically violent practices against your people. I'm thinking of, for example, Amazon. Now, Amazon came out with Black Lives Matter slogan on its uh, website, on Audible, on pretty much like everywhere that you could find an Amazon property to consume from uh, had a slogan Black Lives Matter on it. Now, out of all the tech companies, Amazon has the largest uh, proportion of people of color, uh, more so than Facebook, Google, Apple, et cetera. Why? Because they work in Amazon's quote unquote fulfillment centers. They work in Amazon's warehouses. So they are demographically more diverse. But then how does Amazon behave towards the people that works in fulfillment centers? Well, we know that they piss in bottles because they can't take breaks. We know that they faint because the warehouses are so hot and they refuse to install uh, proper heating and cooling systems. And they're on their feet so much that they're literally fainting away at their jobs. And there's ambulances waiting patiently outside to cart them away while somebody else comes in to fill the shift uh, from the fainted away worker. Like we know that it is uh, an exploitative and horrendous business practice that to me is a violence upon the community itself. But you think that Amazon should exercise some responsibility in the current moment by saying Black Lives Matter. So the fuck what? Uh, Uber um, has billboards going up in select cities as it says, saying that uh, if you are okay with racism, delete Uber or something to that effect. Uber is one of the worst fucking companies I can even like is even possible to imagine. The idea that the 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 capital cost is just shunted off to the worker, like the worker bears the brunt of your company's capital cost, and you're going to pay them back in peanuts. And on top of that, you're going to incentivize those workers to discriminate against people of color because we know that. Uh, in, in neighborhoods where there is a higher proportion of non-white people, they pay more. They pay more in Uber fares. So, from the from the top down, this is a systemically racist company. And you think that if they come out with a slogan or a billboard in select cities saying that they're against racism, that they're suddenly okay? The reason that this all comes about is because we have taken everything except for consumption and electoral politics off the table. Those are the two modes of political action that people believe it's either vote at the ballot box or vote with your wallet, but either way vote. And I don't know exactly how we got here, but I want off. Like this is, this is to me, it is so fucked up that the, the methods of protest available to you are to buy or not buy things, to vote for this candidate or not vote for that candidate. And 
the way that you're going to pressure them into treating you like a human being is to hear them parrot slogans or have things come out of their mouths that are going to be pleasing to you, but then not engage in the necessary actions to end that systemic oppression. Like Amazon workers are still being paid jack shit. They're still not able to unionize. They're, they're, as a matter of fact, they're being spied on uh, by uh, Amazon intelligence analysts now. Joe Biden has talked about increasing the budget for police. He hasn't offered specific and actionable agenda items where it comes to housing, where it comes to education or any of that, uh, that uh, creates that systemic violence for black people in the first place. But people want to talk about voting for Joe Biden and holding him accountable. That to me is that method of co-optation where, uh, or a friend of mine actually calls it NGOification, where you're going to, to take that radical action and subsume it in the methods that are most amenable to that bourgeois population you're going to parrot their methods and then wait for them to parrot back to you what it is that you want to hear. That is how that co-optation has been working. Mm -hmm. I know that was a really long rant, but I hope that all oh, makes sense. No, I mean, I, it's, it's some, like I said, it's something I've been very interested in. And I mean, I, I, the work that I've been doing has kind of focused on, on co-optation, but in a, in a different sense, it was like on the co-optation uh, of the, uh, protests in the Middle East, the co-optation of these Islamist groups, uh, or Islamist groups co-opting uh, radical struggle. And I, like, I think one of the key things, and maybe this is just like my materialism at play, and I'll be brief because I think we're coming up on time, but, but I, I, I definitely, I, I think it's, it's really a matter of uh, funding and backing in these contexts because if you look at it like for instance even Hamas who is now like uh, the, the big villain in in Palestine well they they are where they're at because they were supported by the US and Israel against uh, against secular Marxists and against other secular groups and we keep seeing the same thing over and over again and I think you know um, it's it's a, it's a matter of controlled opposition and so I think with, with a lot of the co-optation happening with these movements, obviously, again, it's not the same where there's not like a religious element. Um, but I do think that, you know, there's an attempt to create a sort of controlled opposition. Um, yeah, it definitely has been. You know, there's, uh, when you have like your Oprah Winfrey's, uh, your, um, God, there was a, uh, a, an event uh, that was on, uh, it was broadcast on the web and it was supposedly about Breonna Taylor, but it was a lot of uh, celebrities and academics and, and people talking about the need to address systemic violence against black women, which is in and of itself a good thing. But I didn't see uh, any family member. I didn't see friends or community members um, that would have known Breonna Taylor personally. It was just, we need to have a conversation about this now. And it was almost like using Breonna Taylor's name to open a door for a conversation that people already had pre-existing. And it, it was sickening to me because it was really just trading off of somebody's name to create a, 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 a conversation that was already being had before she'd, have, she'd uh, been murdered by police. But more so than that, like I see, for example, like the, the, the one that stood out to me, like the one that um, made me want to vomit, was seeing D. Ray McKesson and uh, several other activists, and I know that he's not involved with uh, with BLM personally himself, but people that sort of came up uh, during that timeline 
um, that were associated with the movement. Uh, seeing him on a flyer for a Wells Fargo event talking about black liberation. Like Wells Fargo, this fucking, this, this company, which not only was implicated in the 2008 financial crisis as, have, as having been one of the companies that was responsible for predatory lending towards black communities, uh, that, uh, that people who were being, uh, whose homes were foreclosed on being kicked out of their homes because the teaser rate ran out and the interest rate uh, spiked. They were on these shitty loans that were created by this company, but Wells Fargo itself having ties to US slavery, to put your name on an event to talk about liberation and then have that corporate logo behind you. Or for Nicole Hannah-Jones, for example, to, uh, to, to have uh, a talk um, about Black history and liberation, but then have the fucking shell logo above your head. Like that, it, it, and this is without even getting to the conversation about whether we should trust people that have like uh, Fulbright uh, Rhodes and, and, and are members of the Ford Foundation. This is without even getting into all that. It's the steady like corporatization of the liberation movement that we've gone from being distrustful of state organizations and being distrustful of multinational corporations, many of which have had like their own histories or, or tied to uh, either uh, slavery in the past or exploitation and subjugation of the African continents in the present, uh, to, to merge the two together now. And I don't know. I don't know exactly what people think is going to arise out of this. Like forgetting the, uh, the class conversation in black liberation politics altogether and wedding that conversation to, to multinationals and to larger politics. I don't know what people think the end goal is going to be here. Um, and I wonder if there's even any thought beyond, well, this pays. I, I, I have no idea. I don't know, but I, I know that I don't like it. Yeah, no, I fully feel that. And I, I think we should compare some notes um, because we have <laughs> come up on time, but I, I, there's so much more to say. But thank you so much for, for coming on. Uh, very illuminating discussion. And uh, thanks to everyone for listening.